Friends, welcome to the Slaking Thirst podcast, where you'll find the homilies, talks, and reflections of Father Ryan Mann and Father Patrick Schultz of the Diocese of Cleveland. Slaking Thirst is all about bringing the thirst deep within our hearts for love and communion to the heart of Christ, which is also a divine heart, seeking our love and communion in return. The hope is that the two thirsts will meet and both thirsts will be slaked. Thanks for joining us on the journey into Christ's desire for us. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Mark. On that day, as evening drew on, Jesus said to his disciples, Let us cross to the other side. And leaving the crowd, they took Jesus with them in the boat, just as he was. And other boats were with him. A violent squall came up, and waves were breaking over the boat so that it was already filling up. Jesus was in the stern, asleep on a cushion. And they woke him and said to him, Teacher, do you not care that we are perishing? He woke up, rebuked the wind, and said to the sea, Quiet, be still. And the wind ceased, and there was great calm. And then he asked them, Why are you terrified? Do you not yet have faith? They were filled with great awe and said to one another, Who then is this whom even the wind and the sea obey? The Gospel of the Lord. Well, good morning. Let's start by wishing my fellow fathers out there a happy Father's Day. So good to be with you this morning. So um, what I want to do this morning for this homily is I want to say a word about uh, masculinity and fatherhood. And then I want to talk about the gospel and I want to say a little bit about how I think, um, how I think they're related. So uh, hopefully they are. All right. So let's go from there. All right. So um, one of the things that's been awesome for me, uh, I guess, as a young priest, youngish priest, is watching... Um, being part of the marriage preparation for friends of mine, people I, either I've walked with in youth group or uh, just friends from grade school and watching them get married, being part of that whole experience and process. And then uh, watching like my buddies, you know, guys I used to build forts with and like do sword fights with and all of the stupid things and awesome things that boys do to see them like become dads and see how that whole thing changes and transforms their, their lives. And, you know, watching... Friends of mine become fathers has been such an influential thing in my own heart as a father, um, as a spiritual father, right? Because I'm not called father just because it's like, um, you know, like a, it's not a, a, an ersatz fatherhood. It's not a pity thing, right? Spiritual fatherhood, it's a real experience. It's a real expression of, of fatherhood. Um, you know, if it's true in Catholic theology that grace builds on nature, then spiritual generativity, spiritual fatherhood... Um, it's in some ways more real than natural fatherhood. And that was a real mind-blowing thing for me to realize in seminary. Fatherhood is so incredibly important. It's so important. You know, it's another homily for another day, but I think you could link so many of our culture and our world's social ills to um, just men not living out their mission and vocation of fatherhood. Another homily, another day. But here's where I want to go. I want to start with this. I want to share a memory that came to me when I was thinking about all this, that a number of years ago, uh, I was uh, with friends of mine attending uh, one of those um, c- 
Christian family music festival things up in Cleveland. Um, I'm not going to name the name of it. You probably know what it is, but the, uh, it's at the seminary. Anyway, moving on. So, um, yeah, I was, it was a fun, you know, it's a fun day. They got bands and music, all sorts of things for families and kids. And it's, you know, billions of people show up there and it's, it's wonderful. It's really a great thing. And every year they're trying to do new things, you know, to, you know, we got this new thing this year or this new band's coming. But the one particular year I was there, they, the big new things were, uh, they had a mom's tent and a dad's tent. Okay. So, um, uh, truth be told, didn't go in the mom's tent because I'm not a mom. All right. So, but I heard the mom's tent was awesome. All right. So they had like, you could sign up for massages and like, I don't know, pedicures and I don't know what they were doing in the mom's tent, but every mom that went to the mom's tent was like, that mom's tent is awesome. Okay. And I was like, what's going on in the dad's tent? I look over in the dad's tent. The dad's tent was filled with basically arcade games. Yeah. There was like, and there weren't any men in there. There was a bunch of like 13-year-old boys running around in the dad's tent playing Papa Shot and billiards and every other thing that they could, you know. It was like a, like a Dave and Buster's under a tent in a field. I was so struck by that. And um, even now as I'm bringing up the memory of sharing it, I'm like getting mad again. <laughs> like, I was so insulted. I was so insulted. It was such a commentary, I felt, of what... Like, the cultural narrative of what masculinity and fatherhood is. Now, granted, do I enjoy a Papa Shot game every once in a while? Absolutely. But to say that we're going to dedicate an entire dad's tent to adolescent games is such a, it's so revealing of what our culture thinks about masculinity and fatherhood. I was so frustrated. I was so frustrated. I'm not sure what I expected to be in that dad's tent, like... Maybe like a cigar bar or like a bourbon tasting section, you know. I'm not sure if you can do that at a Christian family festival. When I run a Christian family festival, I'll, <laughs> I'll tell you. All right. Anyway, so here's, here's what really struck me when I think back on this, right? This whole narrative surrounding masculinity, it is so very much under attack. This narrative about what a man is, fatherhood, all of these things, that manhood, unlike femininity and womanhood, is not um, something that a boy naturally is ushered through, right? So nature just, for girls, nature ushers a girl from, from girlhood to womanhood biologically. But manhood, and by extension fatherhood, it's a cultural um, reality that has to get handed on within the narrative of the culture, right? So a culture's narrative or vision of manhood, and therefore its vision of fatherhood, um, it has to be handed on. It has to be handed on. And I think it's been so very much under attack, not just in recent days or recent decades or recent centuries. It stretches all the way back, all the way back to the garden. It goes all the way back to the very beginning. Because it's not just our modern culture that thinks manhood is toxic and awful. It's the enemy who from the beginning was attacking fatherhood. Uh, St. John Paul II, when he's thinking about and writing about original sin, he says original sin wasn't just simply an attack on, like, God's rules. He said original sin was an attempt to abolish the fatherhood of God. Original sin, at the very heart of it, is an attempt to disfigure the very identity, the very idea of fatherhood. Right? Because what does the enemy do? He approaches Eve, not because she's the weak one, but because she's the receptive one because she represents all of humanity. 
He approaches Eve and begins to suggest that this God of yours is not the good and loving prodigal father that you thought he was, that he's actually withholding something from you. As the catechism says, like, original sin was an attempt to abolish fatherhood, leaving man, humanity, with only a sense of the master-slave relationship. Not the identity, or not the relationship of father to son, father to children. That he's a master, we are slaves, right? The enemy has been attacking fatherhood from the beginning. He hates Brothers, he hates your manhood. He hates your fatherhood. He hates the fact that everything about you from your biology to your anatomy, physiology, everything about your manhood speaks to and reveals the outward, initiating, active, life-giving love of the Father. That's what our manhood is meant to testify to, to the eternal generosity of God's fatherhood. That's why he hates it. Because our manhood is meant to reveal the lo- a love of the Father that is, that is both strong and powerful and at the same time tender and weak. That is authentic masculinity. So if you go back to the very beginning, so I talked about how original sin, right? But if you go back to the beginning, what's going on when God's making our humanity, in particular our masculinity and femininity? What is he doing there, right? Because God's making everything in the beginning, Let there be light and there's light. Let the waters come forth, they come forth. Let them teem with life. All these things happen. Then it says, there's like a pause, and then God says, let us make man in our image after our likeness. Male and female, he created them. The words in Hebrew, right there in Genesis, are not nouns, male and female. They are zakar and nikeva. This is the Hebrew word, zakar and nikeva. They're actually adjectives. So the way that God made humanity was zakar and nikeva, active and receptive. Masculine, feminine are the words that Hebrew, the Hebrew scriptures use. And the word zakar is closely related in its word group to another Hebrew word called zikaron, a verb, zikaron, which means to remember. And nikeva is related to another Hebrew word group, which is negeba, which means to open, to open. One of the um, ancient rabbis, his commentary on this is that when he, the man, remembers who he is and what his mission is, she will open. But when he forgets who he is and what his mission is, she will close in every sense of the word. And the new thing about Jesus, Jesus, the enfleshment, the making flesh invisible, the very fatherhood of God, Jesus making visible like the bridegroom heart of Yahweh. And Jesus comes to humanity, just like the lover in the Song of Songs comes to his bride and he's knocking on the door. He's saying, open to me, my sister, my bride. I know who I am. I'm trying to remind you of who you are, that it's safe to open your heart to me. I see the enemy is going after masculinity and fatherhood because if he can get men to forget who they are and what they are and what their mission is, then he will necessarily cause her to shut down her heart, 
her life, her womb, all of the things. Because the enemy is the author of the culture of death. He does not want there to be communion. He does not want there to be the complementarity. He wants to rip things apart. What God has joined together, the enemy wants to divide. Christ and his church, husbands from wives. Do you see what's going on here? These are not separate things. These are all related things. Like I said, by and large, in our culture, men, I think, have forgotten what it means. They've been under attack, forgetting what it means to be men. And I think this is, I think, perhaps the greatest need both in our, in our church, but also in our culture. I want to read this quote from uh, my dude, Fulton Sheen. Um, in an address he gave called The World's Greatest Need, he wrote this. There is a famine abroad on the earth, a famine not of bread, for we have had too much of that, and our luxury has made us forget God, a famine not of gold, for the glitter of so much of that has blinded us to the meaning of the twinkle of the stars, but a famine of a more serious kind, and one which threatens nearly every country in the world, the famine of really great men. In other words, the world today is suffering from a terrible nemesis of mediocrity, We are dying of ordinariness. We are perishing from our pettiness. The world's greatest need is a man, is men, men who will understand that there is no greater conquest than victory over oneself. Men who will realize that the real worth, that real worth is achieved not so much in activity as by silence. Men who will seek the kingdom of God and his justice and put into actual practice the law that it is only by dying to the life of the body that we ever live to the life of the spirit. Men who will brave the taunts of a Good Friday to win the joy of Easter Sunday, who will, like a lightning flash, burn away the bonds of feeble interests which tie down our energies to the world, who with a fearless voice like John the Baptist will arouse our enfeebled nature out of the sleek dream of unheroic repose, who will gain victories not by stepping down from the cross and compromising with the world, but who will suffer in order to conquer the world. In a word, what we need are saints. For saints are the truly great men. And what are saints? This is me now, not Fulton Sheen. Individuals who have let themselves be pierced by the beauty of the gospel, by the beauty of Jesus. Both men and women, saints are those who have been so gripped and captured by the love of Jesus that they have surrendered the entirety of their life to him, their hearts to the Lord, and they have opened themselves, the wombs of their hearts, in that posture of childlike awe and wonder and trust to let the Father generate new life in them. That's what a saint is. And I bring, okay, I bring all of that up because when we look at the gospel that we just heard from today, Jesus calming the storm, right? Jesus in the boat, asleep on the cushion. What we see is Jesus like putting his apostles into a situation where he intends to form their manhood anew. Like, he's, he's doing something. He's forming them. He's, he's, he's transforming them. He's trying to craft their hearts into a new level of understanding what it means to be a man. Right? In other words, for the, his 12 apostles, for them to become the pillars and the foundation of this new humanity that Jesus is building called the church, in order for them to be the saints he needs them to be, he needed to break them of their old way of understanding what it means to be a man in order to usher them into a whole new way, a whole new narrative of masculinity and fatherhood. That's what he's doing in this gospel. 
And it all starts with his suggestion. Like, I think we forget that very first line from the gospel. It was Jesus who said, let us cross to the other side of the lake. It was his idea. The omniscient word made flesh, the God who's walking amongst them, who knew the storm was coming. He knew it was coming. If he wanted to protect them from danger, he would have just said, hey, let's walk around the other side, to the other side of the lake. I've got a feeling it's going to get nasty out here, right? And he says, let's cross the other side of the lake, knowing full well the storm was coming. Knowing full well that not only like the storm on the lake was coming, but the storm of the church would be coming. The storm in the, in the next decades in terms of persecution and over the next centuries as the church, the bark of Peter, had to learn how to accurately, how to authentically weather the storm as he intends them to. He had to put them into the crucible to break them, to teach them what it means to be men, to ready them. So they set out, and he lays down in the back of the boat. How great is that detail, right? In the stern of the boat, he lays down. All seems fine. It's calm. The weather is calm, but then it begins to change. The winds begin to blow. And the Greek language here in the gospel is, is it's an intense and violent storm. Such a storm that like these fishermen who spent their livelihoods on this lake a storm that they had never seen before, of such massive proportions that they were freaking out. Their boat was capsizing, and he's sleeping on a cushion. Why does he slumber? Because he wanted them to confront, like in their bones, their utter powerlessness. He wanted them to feel it in their bones. Because I'm sure at first, as the storm was beginning, as the waves were coming over the sides of the boat, they were like, okay, we got this. We've been here before. We know how to handle this. And they got buckets, and they're bailing out the boat. And they're shouting orders to each other. Grab the main line. Hold the rigging. You got this. We can do this. You know, like, like Lieutenant Dan on the boat. He's like, oh, is that the best you can do? Right? That's what they're doing. And then things get really bad. And like ropes are sliding through their hands and more water is coming in than they can bail out. And they're suddenly realizing we can't do this. We don't have the power to save ourselves or this boat. And that's when they wake him, when they're at the very end of what's capable for them. Just like God letting the Israelites get to the very edge of the Red Sea with the Egyptian army behind them. All of your, all of your resources exhausted. You've got nothing left. You can't do anything more. It's then that they wake him. Lord, we are perishing. And as the Lord calms the storm, as he awakes, and just with two words, quiet, be still. These men who were strong and powerful and capable, these men who were like reduced to nothing, they were beginning to learn where their actual power came from. They were finally beginning to learn where their actual power came from. Because if they're going to be Jesus' emissaries to the world, if they would be the ones who would go out and preach and teach and evangelize and build this thing called the church, they had to know where their power came from. Because imagine if, like, at the ascension, Jesus ascends and they say, all right, we got this, right? We would not be sitting here today. It had to be a prof they had to know deep in their bones that to do this, to do anything, the power comes from outside of them. Just like my brothers, if you are going to lead your families, if you're going to serve your spouses, your wives, your children, if you're going to 
challenge and correct and father the way that God intends you to father all of those things. You have to know where your power comes from. Because it ain't from you. You don't have it within yourself to do the mission that you're being asked to do. The apostles didn't have it within themselves to do the mission that they were asked to do. It comes from the one whom the winds and the seas obey. Like your power as a man and as a father must come from, it comes from being with Jesus. That's the answer. By allowing Jesus to get into the boat of your life, let him in, let him get close. Let him like recline on the cushion of your heart, on the soft places of your heart. You have to let Jesus in. If you don't let the powerful one in, you don't have power. See, authentic masculinity, it's lived out only in relationship to Jesus. Like, in the measure that I let him into my boat, in the measure that I let him calm the storms in me, in the measure that I trust him, then I will be empowered to be the man and the father that I'm called to be, both as a spiritual father and as natural fathers. That's the answer. It's time to let Jesus, who is already waiting for you, it's time to say, like, Lord, I can't do this anymore. And the moment that you admit your powerlessness, that's when his power floods in. The moment you admit, I can't do this, is the moment you're able to do it. It's a paradox, but it's true. So my brothers, on this Father's Day, I just want to encourage us to again surrender and utterly relinquish our hearts to him. He is no threat to our masculinity. He is actually the perfection and the fulfillment of it. Amen. Amen.